and ask that you would send your spirit as the interpreter, the one who dwells in every believer, the one who inspired the writing of the word, the one who can open our hearts so that we might understand things spiritually oriented. Take your word, word home to our hearts with power today so that we will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Sometimes people will ask me, because we've taken multiple trips to Israel, what's your favorite part of Israel? And I say, well, I kind of answer like the glutton when asked, what's your favorite food? I like it all. But if you would to, to kind of push me into a corner and say, what is indeed your favorite spot, your favorite experience, I seem like I always come back to the Sea of Galilee. And from all the wonderful stories about the life of Christ on the Sea of Galilee, I seem to always come back to the time when Jesus walked on the sea. It's found in Matthew chapter 14. Let me encourage you to turn to that section of scripture. And it's a story about a rough night on the sea. Actually, the whole chapter is linked together with very important uh, events in the life of Christ. First of all, the, the first uh, 13 verses or so deal with, first 12 verses deal with the death of John the Baptist and the fact that Herod Antipas, who by the way had his palace on the Sea of Galilee in the city of Tiberias, thought that the coming of Jesus was John come back from the dead. It highlights the fact that there was a lot of political unrest and tension going on around the Sea of Galilee, and Tiberius might have been even in his palace when all of this took place. So the scripture says, when Jesus heard what happened to John, verse 13, as soon as he heard the news, he went off by himself in a boat to a remote place. But the crowds heard where he was and headed there, following him, vast crowds. And Jesus had compassion... And so in that desolate place, Jesus began to heal people until the scripture says it was almost evening. And because it was almost evening, evening, the disciples said, well, Lord, you need to send these people away so they can go in the various towns and buy food. It's getting late. And Jesus said, uh, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you feed them? <laughs> and their response was, Impossible. What can we do? I find it interesting that when Jesus gives us a command to do something for his name, our response is similar. This is impossible. <laughs> All we've got are, you know, just uh, some fish and some bread. And Jesus said, bring that to me. And he breaks it. And you know the story of the feeding of the 5,000 plus. There were 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children in that day, unfortunately. But it simply shows that the crowd might have been 10,000, maybe 15,000. Who knows? But Jesus fed them all from a small lunch and ended up with 12 baskets of uh, leftovers. <laughs> and boy, what a stir that caused. 
The Bible tells us that the crowd was pretty excited. And I'm sure to some extent the disciples were too. But when we get to verse 22, this is Matthew 14 and verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. After they were fed and darkness is descending upon the whole place... Jesus, and this is a very strong, unusually strong word, he compelled the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, if you're following Mark's reading of the same event, the other side is Bethsaida. And if you go to the traditional place where Jesus fed the 5,000, that means you're on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and actually you're heading from the west side uh, toward the east side to walk the distance is about an hour. But why? Why did Jesus send these disciples away? Why did he command them to go? And I think the first reason is simply this. Everyone wanted to make him king. I think the disciples might have been maybe unwittingly encouraging the crowd. Hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Let's make him king. And look what it says in John's gospel, chapter 6 and verse 14, that when all of this happened, the people got excited and they wanted to force Jesus actually to be king. Could we see John 14, please? And so the, the fact that the matter was that Jesus was working against the, the whole enthusiasm of the crowd and maybe the disciples too. And it wasn't time for Jesus to be king. By the way, Herod might have been able to see from his palace the goings-on that were taking place in the shore. And so when Jesus said to go to the other side, it's very interesting, going from the traditional place where Jesus fed the 5,000 over to Bethsaida is rather short distance, but you're going from the western side to the eastern side. You're crossing into a new territory. You're out of Herod's jurisdiction and into the jurisdiction of Philip the Tetrarch, so at least the disciples would be safe. It might have been a political move. And that's why he urged them to get in the boat and go to the other side. Compelled them while he dismissed the crowd and tried to put down this enthusiastic uprising to force him to be king before his time. Because Jesus could not yet become king before the crown. There's going to be the suffering, the cross, right? There's a second reason uh, why Jesus compelled them to get in the boat and to go to the other side. And that reason, well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, Jesus told them to get in the boat, and the scripture tells us, verse 23, when he sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now evening came. It was approaching when the 5,000 were fed. Now it is indeed dark. Evening is upon them. And he was alone there up on the mountain. But the boat that the disciples were in was in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now again, it was a rather short cruise. Not even a three-hour cruise. <laughs> 
and the weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. Sound familiar? And they end up now in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's only about seven miles across, but they're further from shore than they ever have been all night. And they've been rowing and really getting nowhere. And look at the word tossed in verse 24. Very unusual word. It's used about 12 times in the New Testament. And it is the word tormented. (laughs) They were being tormented by the sea. And they were feeling it. Did Jesus know that they were going to get into trouble that night when he compelled them to get in the boat and go on the sea? Did he know? If he's God, he did. And he is God. In fact, they were in the midst of a horrible situation, endangering their lives at the command of God, simply because they obeyed what God told them to do. And you and I find ourselves in our own experience in difficult situations that seem life-threatening where we are being tormented by the waves of life and we fall back on this in a quandary. Jesus told me to go here. (laughs) Jesus told me to do this. So I ask you the question, what does Jesus do when he sends you and I into the storms of life? What does he do? Does he know what's going on? Does he have a purpose in it all? Well, the first thing Jesus does is he prays for us. Right? Verse 23. He sent the multitude away. He commissioned the disciples to get into the boat. And he prays. Did he know what they were going to encounter that night on the sea? Yes. What does he do? He goes up into the mountain. And prays. Who is he praying for? I think he's praying for the disciples who are on the sea. You say, where do you get that? Well, in Mark's account of this story, the Bible tells us in chapter 6, verse 48, that Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars. Now, that's a very interesting statement because if you look at the little ships, that they used in that day. And one boat has been recovered and is on display in a museum in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Jesus Boat. It's a rather small ship, but it did have a mast in which a sail was placed to catch the wind. But these people were rowing. Why? Because a horrible storm had taken place. What the locals call a Shekira. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, it's like it's in the bottom of a bowl. And the high mountains, especially in the northern region, all around the sea, cause storms to come in in sudden fashion without any warning. And when they hit with such force, like a Shekira, the waves can get over six feet. And it's impossible to sail or row against them. So I don't know where the wind was coming. In the northern part of the sea, it's like you're in a whirlwind. It's coming from every direction. But they were making no headway in the midst of the storm. And I think Jesus was praying for the disciples that he sent into the midst of the storm. 
Say, did Jesus know what you would encounter in life when you gave him your heart and became his child? Yes. Did Jesus know the storms, the opposition, the heartache that you would face as a believer? Absolutely. What's he doing about it? He ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father. And what is he doing there? Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says Jesus at the right hand of God the Father is interceding for us. Did you know the greatest thing you can do for anyone is to pray for them? And did you know that the greatest person you can have praying for you is Jesus? And did you know he's praying for you right now? You feel all alone in the midst of the storm and wonder why in the world would God put this on your agenda, on your life plan, and what is he doing about it? He's praying for you to accomplish his divine purpose. So never forget this. While I'm rowing down here, He's praying up there. And he knows exactly what's happening because he sent me into the storm. The second amazing thing about this miracle is that Jesus comes to them. That's what he does for them. He prays for them first of all and then he comes to them in the second place. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. What was troubling them? The sea. I mean, the wind without the sea is no big danger, but a strong wind out on the sea is life-threatening. And Jesus comes to them on the very thing that is troubling them, the sea. Let me put it another way. They would not have seen this amazing miracle and the power of Christ had it not been for their problems. And could it be at times that Jesus allows us to go out in the midst of a troubled sea so that we can learn how powerful he is? By the way, they had just seen him turn a small lunch into a miraculous feast for thousands of people, and they didn't get it. This is lesson number two. <laughs> Same lesson, actually, just a different approach. You didn't get it the first time. You didn't realize the power the first time. Let's try a different approach. <laughs> and so that's exactly what God is doing for them. By the way, I want you to understand this. Verse 25 says, Now it was the fourth watch of the night, the Jews normally divided the 12 hours of night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into three watches. But later on, they adopted the more popular Roman division of four watches. So the fourth watch of the night is that last part of the night just before dawn. It's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. We don't know exactly when this is happening, but it is happening somewhere around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., which means that these dudes have been rowing on the sea against the wind for hours. And I'm sure they said to themselves, where's Jesus? 
Have you ever prayed for Jesus to come and help you in your problem and it seems like you're praying forever and there's no response? That's the way they felt. Why did he send us? Apparently he didn't know what's going on. And where is he? By the way, Jesus said, I will meet up with you later. They were probably hoping that he would meet up with them sooner than later. And nothing was happening. The fourth watch of the night. Boy, the the problems I face never seem to be solved in the first watch. And that's part of God's plan as we endure and go through the difficulties. Nine hours of rowing. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. By the way, did you know that the Egyptian symbol in hieroglyphics to speak about the impossible thing is simply a picture of two feet on water? (laughs) I love that. It's impossible to feed a multitude with a small lunch. It's impossible to walk on the water. And yet Jesus is doing it. By the way, I have no idea how he did it. Did he congeal the water and make it hard? So that his feet had something stable? Or was he levitating uh, above the waves? Doesn't make any difference. As we heard a moment ago, the one who made the sea creates the sea. He can easily walk on the sea. Because the sea is his. He knows how it works. And as he suspended the physical laws of nature and life... When he multiplied the bread, so he's now suspended the laws once more to come walking on the water to the disciples. And the guys who were mystified by the miracle of the bread are now terrified by the waves of the sea, and Jesus conquers their problem. That's it. That's the point. Whatever problem you have, Jesus is greater than the problem. And he'll come to you and reveal himself to you in the midst of the problem. You just may have to wait till the fourth watch of the night. I don't know if you're clapping because the fourth watch of the night is a long time to wait. (laughs) Or because that's what's happening to you. The third thing that Jesus does is he teaches them. He teaches them. He teaches them about his amazing power. He teaches them that he is the sovereign of the seas and nothing is too hard for him. Didn't you get it earlier in the evening when I multiplied the bread? Okay, how about this lesson? Do you get it now that I'm on the sea? By the way, the scripture says, when Jesus came walking to them, they were troubled by his presence and said what? It's a ghost. The Greek word is where we get our English word phantom. It's only used two times in the New Testament, both occasions in this story. It's a phantom. And Jesus said, no, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. And that's what Jesus says to us in the midst of our problems. There's a positive way to look at this. I'm here. By the way, it is I. In the middle of verse 27 is a lot like I am in the Old Testament. I am. I am here. It is I. Don't 
be afraid. One word from Jesus can calm our fears. That's the point. Learn in your problems, whatever they may be, however long they last, to hear the word of Christ, to see and know the presence of Christ, and to embrace the word of Christ. Be of good cheer. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Now, at that very moment, the waves are still slopping over the boat. But now their eyes are upon their Savior, and he wants to teach them of his power. I like Psalm 93, verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the mighty waves of the sea. And just use that verse, Psalm 93, verse 4, and put your problem in that verse. The Lord on high is mightier than my present financial situation, mightier than my disability and illness, mightier than the breakup of the relationships in my family. The Lord on high is mightier than anything that you and I face. And in our problems, he prays for us, he comes to us, and he teaches us. By the way, Peter was going to get a lesson, right? In the other accounts of this story, it says nothing about Peter. But in verse 28, Peter answers him, Lord. Now, Peter is the spokesman for the group. He's often the one who speaks first. And he often speaks without thinking. Some people feel this is the height of presumption. I'm not so sure. Lord, if it's you. Now, that he's not wondering if it is he now recognizes it is he's heard the word from the Lord he's embracing God's word yes it's you I recognize it's you Lord since it's you bid me command me to come to you on the water Peter's the only one who would have thought of that and I'm sure if Thomas had been there at the same time he would have said oh Peter just shut up and sit still the Lord's here don't make a scene But Jesus said to Peter, come. Why? Did the Lord know that Peter was going to sink? Yeah, that's a lesson Peter needed to learn. But I think sometimes God is just so happy when we venture out to do something by faith that he lets us do it even though he knows we'll fail to some degree. Come. And so Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water. Who in the world has ever walked on the water? Two people, Jesus and Peter. Now, I'm really glad that Peter didn't make it all the way to Jesus and then back all the way to the boat without a drop of water on him. Or you and I would have been in trouble. We would have been hearing from Peter the rest of our lives oh by the way you remember that time I walked on the water yeah whenever you and I do something that appears to be amazing we have a tendency to remind people so they don't forget yeah I've heard the story but Jesus lets him sink a little bit to humble him it's a good balance so Peter begins to sink verse 30 when he saw the wind By the way, in the original, it says nothing about the wind being boisterous. It just says he saw the wind. You can't see wind, but you can see the effect of the wind. He got his eyes off Jesus and on the turbulent sea. He took his eyes off of Christ and put them back on his problems. And that's 
when he began to sink. When you and I have our eyes on Christ in the midst of the storm, we can do the miraculous. When we take our eyes off of Christ, we began to sink. In Peter's defense, he recognized who Jesus was. He took bold action by faith. And he experienced a miracle. Trust that does not express itself in obedience is mere sentiment. Action that does not grow out of trust in God is complete arrogance. But when we recognize God and we believe his word and we step out by faith, that's when amazing things take place. It's the obedience that comes from faith. But when he took his eyes away from the one he was depending upon in the midst of his problem and put his eyes back on his problem, the scripture says he began to seek. But Jesus is compassionate. Aren't you glad that God does not reward us after our sins? That he does not pay us justly for our iniquities? Aren't you glad of Psalm 103. Lord, save me, Peter says. By the way, that's a good prayer. Analyze it for a moment. He prayed to the right person. He had the right verb. And it was personal. Lord, save me. No extraneous words there. No liturgy that goes on and on. It's short. It's powerful. It's heartfelt. And God saves him. And Jesus takes him by the hand and pulls him up out of the water. Now, wherever they were, they were still some distance from the boat. And here's a beautiful scene. Hand in hand, Jesus and Peter walk back to the boat. Yeah, Peter's a little wet. And he's very humbled. But they're walking hand in hand. And that's the picture you and I need to see in our own lives of Jesus saving us. And then we walk hand in hand with him. Immediately, verse 31, Jesus stretched out his hand and said, Oh, you of little faith. I was surprised to see that the original Greek has the phrase little faith faith just with one word. It's found four times in the New Testament. Little faith. Little faith. Diminished faith. We, We have to put two words to it I don't think is there any way to describe faith diminished in one word in English but there is in the original language and here it is little faith he didn't say you don't have any faith he says you have little faith and when they got into the boat verse 32 the wind ceased that's a miracle Now remember I told you there were two reasons for Jesus sending these disciples out into the sea. What was the first one? They wanted to make him king that night and it wasn't time. What was the second one? Jesus wanted to soften their hearts. Jesus wanted to Soften their hard hearts. You say, well, where do you get that? You do have to go to Matthew, or Mark's gospel, chapter 6. And it says, when Jesus got in the boat, they were completely amazed. Completely amazed. The wind immediately dies down. 
And it says they were amazed because they did not understand about the loaves. Because their hearts were hard. There is so much you and I don't understand about Jesus and the scriptures and our relationship with him because our hearts are not soft. They're calloused. And one of the ways Jesus makes hard hearts soft is to send them out into the sea in the midst of the storm and say, how's it going for you now? And that's when we cry out, Lord, save us. Alexander McLaren said, God never promised us smooth sailing, only a soft landing. (laughs) God never promised you an easy life, only eternal glory. And so I guess that the difficulties of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall follow. Years ago, I heard one of my favorite Bible teachers say this about this very situation, Jesus walking on the water. He said, if all our lives were sunshine and fair weather and there were no dark clouds to threaten our days, God would sometimes have to put us, pick us up and put us in the darkness simply to reveal to us that he is the light. And that, my friend, is in part what is happening to you right now in the midst of your trial. I don't mean to minimize it, just like I don't mean to minimize how dangerous and threatening and scary this situation was, but I simply need need and mean to exalt Jesus as the sovereign of the universe. And when Jesus is in the boat, peace comes to the soul. Look at verse 33. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said what they did not recognize when he broke the bread. Truly, you are the Son of God. And that's where we learn from this wonderful story that our trials, the trials that you and I experience in life are intended to leave us worshipping God. They're not meant to mystify us or to terrify us, although we go through that process. The trials of your life and my life are intended to leave you worshiping God. The one who has all power and is mightier than the seas. We sing, do we not? Every joy or trial falleth from above traced upon our dial by the son of love we may trust him fully all for us to do and they who trust him wholly what's the rest of it find him wholly true and the chorus stayed upon jehovah hearts are fully blessed finding as he promised perfect peace and rest Heavenly Father, help us in the midst of our trials this morning to recognize that you are praying and you are present and you are all-powerful. In Jesus' name, amen.